Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Trent McClellan with the Generators Podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you you, you made it through another week. And um, it's been an interesting week. No doubt about that. Um, as if the uh, social distancing and COVID-19 pandemic wasn't enough, we have now... Uh, dove headfirst into uh, race relations, not just in the United States, but in Canada and around the world. And people are taking a really hard look at themselves and a hard look at the systems and society that allow this stuff to happen. And uh, just myself personally, I've had a lot of conversations and interactions with people about the topic Um, I have to feel somewhat hopeful and positive that this, this event, um, George Floyd's murder, which is what it was, is the, um, tipping point and that people are starting to finally get their head around the fact that this exists and that racism is a real problem and that, um, there is somewhat of a unique experience when you are a black person. It is, uh, it is a unique experience to live in, in certain parts of the world and to be judged by the color of your skin. And uh, people are having those discussions right now. People are looking to learn more to be more vulnerable, to ask more questions. And um, I got to be hopeful that this momentum carries forward, that we don't just let it be this flash in the pan of protests and, you know, rage and anger, and then slowly it subsides and we go right back to where we were. I think we we have to have this moment be something that moves us forward. And uh, uh, it's time, man. It's just... It's just time. Um, To be completely transparent, I had another episode planned uh, for this week. Um, I had a great little sit down with Brian Burke for about a 20 minute chat I was going to put up and uh, just didn't feel it was the right time to do it. So that'll move to next week. And uh, I felt I have to address this topic and I have to talk to people um, who can speak to it and speak to it in an authentic way. And so I reached out to some of my, um, black friends in the comedy world and asked them if they wanted to be on the podcast this week to discuss their experiences, what it was like growing up for them, um, what it's like to be a a black comedian and what the way is, what's the path to go forward? Where do, where do we go from here? Do we have hope with this thing or is all lost? Where, where are we with this? And uh, it is a raw conversation. Um, this is uncensored. This is people feeling the full range of emotions. Um, there is anger in here. There are some things that are going to make you cringe. Um, there are some stories that should, quite frankly, make you feel uncomfortable. 
Um, and these are true experiences of black Canadians in Canada and their lives and their childhoods and things they experienced. And I felt it was important to put this out because I think I've heard a number of times that it's not as bad in Canada as it is in America, or we don't have that problem here. And I'm here to tell you that we do. And these stories will attest to that. And so as you listen to this one, I hope you learn some things. I hope you get a better understanding of what it's like to be black in Canada. Um, a little bit more of an understanding of that experience. And uh, I hope it I hope it changes how you think. I hope it forces you to kind of step back and think about your own feelings and your own actions with regards to racism in this country and how you want to move forward and how you want to affect change in some way. Um, and as I said, these stories are real. I wish they weren't. The people who tell them, I'm sure, wish they weren't. And, uh, but we, I, I, again, I have to, to remain hopeful that this is all happening for a reason that there are, we have finally ripped the blanket off and we've stopped trying to cover it up and look the other way and that we are finally going to do something about it collectively that everyone's going to be better and make more of an effort to understand and to make sure that everyone is treated equally so um I want to set up this this episode. As I said, I reached out to, to five of my, my black friends in the comedy world here in Canada. Um, they are all incredible, incredible performers and artists and writers. Um, absolute killers on stage. They are fantastic and so, so talented. Um, very, very intelligent people. People who have who've experienced a lot in their life. Um, Aisha Brown uh, is on is on this episode. She is a fantastic writer and stand-up comedian uh, living in Toronto. Uh, Kenny Robinson, kind of the godfather of, uh, one of the godfathers of Canadian comedy, uh, based out of Toronto and a fantastic comedian and show producer um, who's blazed a, a trail for, for a lot of us. Uh, Arthur Simeon, who's also based out of Toronto, fantastic comedian, just has a new special out. Uh, that's, that's killer, such a, such a funny guy and a good guy. And then uh, out of Edmonton, where he currently lives, uh, Sterling Scott, who's an absolute monster on stage and hilarious as well. And then um, I have my two cents in there as well. So we, um, I reached out to all of them. Every single one of them, without hesitation, said yes. And I'm thankful for their time and for their honesty and transparency. And uh, here's our discussion. So thanks for tuning in this episode. And I hope you get something out of it. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Generators Podcast. It's Trent McClellan. I am joined by some legends. Some legends today. Uh, some of the best comedians, writers, producers, and just people in the business. And guess what? They happen to be black. We okay? dominate the industry like Trump dominate the street. <laughs> See? It's already started. It's already started. 
so first up, I want to introduce Aisha Brown. Aisha, how are you? Yeah, give it up. Give um, it up for the queen. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm all right, Trent. How are you? I'm okay. I'm gonna. Uh, we will. We will get into it. But I'm. Uh, I'm doing as good as. Uh, as I can do, all things considered. Yeah. Where uh, are you in Calgary? I'm in Calgary right now. Yeah. Spring has fully arrived here, so it's. Uh, it's nice. The weather's been nice there. But, wow. Know, if there's a race war, you can come stay with us in Toronto. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I want to get on a plane right now. It's like, how many masks would I have to wear? If to get there's on a plane? race war, you sure as hell don't want to stay in Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> we might as well introduce him because he's already been in the show twice. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenny Robinson, everybody. Give it up. Yay. I can't breathe. Thank you. I can't breathe. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> also, we have another guy I have not seen. I have not seen this guy since uh, maybe Toronto a couple years ago. Arthur Simeon. Arthur, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Trent? It's good to see you. You too, man. It's been a long, long time. It's and good to see all these faces. I haven't seen anyone in since quarantine, so it's good to see. It's insane. It's good to see all your faces. You look like you lost weight. I have not lost weight. That is 100%. <laughs> Fake news. That is fake news completely. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, this man I think I probably saw at the Halifax Festival maybe last year. Uh, uh, Mr. Sterling like Scott. Sterling, what's up, man? Life and living looking pretty. Yeah, yeah, I know. I can see the visual. Look at that. Look at that dental work. Right off the top, he's just flashing it like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a beautiful man. I got to send these receipts in. I got to send these dental receipts in. All right, let's go. Uh, <laughs> seen Sterling this casual, I'm just going to say. Every time I've seen Sterling Scott, he's had on a full suit. So this is a, this is a treat. I feel like I I'm not supposed to see you like this. That's because I was trying not to go to jail. That's what was happening. <laughs> That's Fair his enough. outfit. Fair yeah, enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, all right. I want to get this started. Um, Aisha, we'll start with you. Give me a snapshot of like the first 10 years of your life like give me a snapshot of like where you grew up family situation like give me a couple of minutes just g give me give people a clear picture of what that looked like for you okay uh <laughs> <laughs> awkward start uh, i was born black mm. uh, it, my Noted. first 10 years of life pretty uneventful yeah my parents uh we were middle class pretty down the middle uh, went to uh, a private school in, uh, with kids who had a lot more money than we did. And, uh, but I didn't really notice because I was a kid until much later in life. Uh, so first 10 years, I don't know. I think I was like, it, I, I balanced between being uh, blissfully a child and ignorant and then having my dad. My dad was like never letting up on reminding us that we were black like dropped us off at a birthday party and was like, don't forget you're black. Like it's going to be <laughs> different from you. You're not like Rachel. You're not like Jen. Like it constant reminders. And initially, you know, you grow up and you don't know because you're a child and you're like, dad has a chip on his shoulder. And then you realize like, oh, this is what every black parent has to do. They have to prepare their kids for a life outside of the shelter oh, of school. Right. So, uh, but you know, I had a, pretty I, I can't complain at a pretty happy childhood other than you know being shitty at school right yeah so. I get you I get you Kenny what about you well, give me a snapshot of like growing up like what was what were the early years like for you black and white <laughs> yo we uh well I don't know what I mean I was born in Winnipeg but I never really got to see Winnipeg till I was almost 10 
because uh, we had to leave Winnipeg because my mother embezzled money from the company of the men that were sexually fondling her while on the job. So and when she decided not to make restitution for her reparations, uh, they flipped the coin, head Chicago, tails New York, and it came up Chi-Town. Right. So, um, you know, uh, my father was referred, because he grew up in, in Winnipeg after his... Uh, his uh, gambling pimp uh, father couldn't uh, bother with him in New York, sent him there to, to be with his dying mother. Uh, man, already we the blues. So Chicago <laughs> was home for me. Right. You know, there I was, uh, I was uh, the light-skinned nigger. Uh, I was, uh, you know, my, my father, um, you know, we, we lived uh, predominantly in, in black neighborhoods. And then we got into Hyde Park, which was the home of uh, interracial marriages in Chicago, also by the University of Chicago. So it was a, a more liberal kind of neighborhood. But um, yeah, from, you know, from from the minute I was in school, you know, grade one, grade two, uh, fights uh, became, uh, you know, down, drawn down racial lines because one of the neighborhoods we were living in, they were, it was white flight, like 65, 66, and all the signs said, this is our home and it's not for sale because those niggers aren't going to chase us out. Right. So, uh, you know, so as long as I can remember, there's been some issues. In fact, uh, the first year we, uh, we were living in, I can remember living in Chicago, we actually, uh, my mother was able to get money for a down payment in a house in a neighborhood called Pill Hill. It was called Pill Hill because it was all doctors at the time. Well, my mother went in and negotiated all the deals. And then when, uh, when she brought her, uh, her, her beige child and her black husband in on moving day, the neighbors went, what the fuck? So uh, we had rocks thrown through our window and uh, they drive through and this is like, I'm, I'm like five years old. And they, they, they drive by and the flashlights in our, in our, through our window at night. And then the, the best was New Year's Day. My dad had this, uh, had this gangster a friend named Millard Frazier. This dude, um, he was the best. Um, you know, he once shot a man for beating his ex-wife. He said, you touch my, 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 touch the mother of my children again, I'm going to kill you. And then he did. So anyway, <laughs> Miller, uh, he came over with about four or five of his baby kids on New Year's Day. And uh, he set up a, a barbecue on the front lawn and he had, he stuck speakers in the window. So they had to listen to James Brown, night train, um, all throughout the neighborhood. And then my mother and I stayed in the hotel that night. I remember leaving as, uh, as my father and Millard sat at the table with two pistols and a gun, and Millard said, "If they coming, they coming tonight." So uh, they didn't come. Instead, they uh, they gave us a little bit more money than we had invested, and we left. Uh, long story short, fifty years later, there isn't a white person living in Pill Hill. Jesse Jackson lives in Pill Hill. It all became black. Uh, it's just that you know we were pioneers in the story. Right on. So, uh, right on. and then with the year my dad died, we couldn't get him into a hospital in the States because we didn't have that insurance. So, uh, we went back to Winnipeg or at least I did. And, uh, and when he died, of course, every time somebody, you know, the kids there in school, they never had a real black person to, to call nigger. So they lined up. Hey, nigger, nigger, nigger. Some of them were so confused. They even said big Jew. And, you know, I had to whoop them for that. Get your shit correct. Right. But, um, you know, but as long as I can remember, uh, race has always been an issue. You know, right. so it doesn't matter if it was in Chicago. I caught shit from the brothers. That's why I got the line. I used to uh, being half black, half white. I had to sit in the middle of the bus all the time. Right. You know, the, the brothers <laughs> right. saw the light skin, saw the saw the the, the skin of uh, of uh, uh, a privilege. 
you know? And yeah. of course, uh, a racist white person, you could be as light-skinned as you want. They will look at your nostrils and see that they're wider than they're supposed to be. Yeah. They will find the slightest bit of, if your breath got grape soda on it, they're going to come and know that what you is. Yeah, so, they, uh, they wouldn't have picked whatever. Yeah, you, would, you wouldn't have fit into any group at all. I had a, no. si I had a, I had a similar experience. Same thing. Of course. The similar. only thing worse yeah. could be like, you know, brothers adopted by white folks. They become NHL players. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You wow. Know, so you had a so you had a pretty standard childhood. So yeah, it's pretty standard, <laughs> run of the mill. Yeah, pistols yeah, on sure. the table. And, pretty and standard. We, I mean, we've all been there. I mean, every every person listening to this is like, yeah, pretty much, except for the lack of juice boxes. Other than that, pretty standard. Well, yeah. one year <laughs> I was at the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, and uh, I pointed to the hotel where my uh, uncle Al got shot through the door in his knee by his ex-wife because he was in there with a whore. And my dad was down the hallway in another room with somebody. He stuck his head out to see, and the woman who did the shooting said, Kenny, get back in your room. And Kenny got back in his room. So, uh, and everybody else, like, then I show, and there's a young uh, quarter of uh, Portage in Maine. My dad, uh, he slit the ass of three white boys that called the woman he was with a nigger lover. So I say, that's his three, that's a quarter of my daddy left three boys clutching their ass. Then I got to tell the history of ass slitting, you know, of slicing. Right. So everybody else in the, in the, just for, in, in the Winnipeg comedy festival van, they're kind of like, well, this, this is not our Winnipeg. So I go, damn, I don't fit in nowhere. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, I got it. I got <laughs> not it. Even, not even at home. Right on. Arthur, what about you, man? What, tell me about the early years. Give me a snapshot of it. I guess I'm the only one here who didn't really discover racism until I was on, as, as an adult because I didn't meet white people till I was about like six or seven and there was You're like so two of them. And, and I remember there's a woman who had gone to school. My mom had traveled most of her adult, her adult life either for school or because when she started working for the government, she worked a few years in foreign affairs and they had sent her to a couple of places. So she had met people on her travels and one of them came to visit. And it, like, it, I think I was maybe eight or nine I went, when that woman came to visit and she was a white woman. And I realized in talking to her, it was the first white person I'd ever had a conversation with. I'd seen some like on the streets growing up, like, you know, like tourists and stuff like that, but I never actually engaged with them. So for me, race, ra racialization is, a, uh, it's not a foreign concept anymore because I've lived in Canada for a long time. But it was a very weird concept for me to understand because when I first moved to Canada, I moved here when I was about uh, 17, maybe almost 18, I thought people would discriminate against me because of my nationality, because I was foreign. I never boiled it down to the color of my skin. When, I, when, when, when people, in the beginning, I'd always be like, yeah, it makes sense that they treat me differently because I'm this African dude and I have an African accent. It only started to sort of like sink in when people would do stuff before I opened my mouth that, it, that I realized, oh, like there's a whole problem here. And I remember talking to, because I have cousins who have been raised in Canada and I said, I'm genuinely sorry. And because I think all four of you were born in Canada, if I'm not wrong. And it, I, I genuinely feel for you because I can't imagine, for me, even in this past week and every other day that we face the bullshit that is racism, my little tiny silver lining is when people say to me, go back where you came from. Mm. 
you went, please. It, there is a place I can go back to. I have family there. It's actually yeah. a happy place for me. My siblings are there. My parents are there. So when people say that to me, I'm like, you know what? Any day, any day, if you give me the money, I'm gone. But um, for the rest of, for people who don't understand it, it's like, I grew up around black. My doctors were black. My teachers were black. The criminals were black. My dad was a police officer. He was black. The, the electricians were black. The uh, cub drivers were black. Uh, every single person. So there was no idea that you couldn't, for example, achieve anything. Like the idea that families celebrate like a doctor. Like this is the first black doctor. I'm like, I grew up around all of them. There was right. never a thing that your skin color could deny you an opportunity to study for something, buy something. You know, the rich people were black, the poor people were black, the middle-class people were black. So moving into a society that completely dehumanized black people without like reserve, right? That idea like, they don't even wait for you. They, so it's not about your education, your skin tone, your, your height, your weight, your, no, no, it's just black, boom, your life is worthless was very foreign to me until university because that's when I came here and I had police roll up on me in my second year of university, uh, you know, kneel down, you know, empty, whatever, middle of the night, no one's around. Um, one time, and we laugh about this now because we, we're older and we sort of, yes, but like one time we went to the movies, there was five of us, supposed to be like a guy's night out. And we're all international students, all African, all black. And one of them brought his girlfriend, who was actually, uh, who is actually Lebanese, but is what the people now call white passing. Like when you look at her, she looks like a white girl, but she was also a foreign student. And uh, we were walking, so we made fun of him. It was like, man, it's like boys' night out, you bring your girlfriend, like what's wrong with you, blah, blah, blah. So on the walk home, uh, a cop car rolls up kind of slows down and then drives off, sort of does the loop, comes back out, and they stop right where, because we're walking home, all, you know, six of us at this point, and they go, excuse me, miss, because she's the only girl in the group. They go, excuse me, miss, are you okay? And the girl goes, what? She goes, they go, are you okay? And she goes, yeah. And the guy, go, the cop goes, are you sure? And then she realizes what's happening. So she flips out. But the problem is she's now getting angry and the Arabic is coming out hot. Like she's screaming, but the, 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 her, her English is just slowly slipping into Arabic. And all five of us just stepped back. And we were like, we are not going to say a word. Like we don't. And I will never forget the cop just sort of smiled and drove off and she kept cursing in Arabic. And we just stood there being like, hey, first of all, good for you doing this. And this was like maybe a year and a half after 9-11. And I was like, you could have gotten all of us. Yeah. You could have taken all of us. We're all gone. Oh, we're all gone. We're all gone. But we did. We survived the night. So, but that was, those were the moments where I realized, oh, this is, this is not an African thing. This is a black thing. Right. It's, it's a visual birth of a nation top. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Doug Ford already told us that systemic racism doesn't exist. Yeah, well, that's good. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's it's good. Bless him. Yeah, yeah. That's Bless good. his heart. That's, that's been wiped. Well, that's been wiped out. That's fantastic. I was uh, yeah. so Ster <laughs> Sterling. Sterling. Uh, Robbie was more with the brothers, wasn't he? 
Yeah, fair, fair, fair. That's fair. <laughs> Sterling, what about you, man? Give us a snapshot. Early living. Um, All right. So, tell us about uh, it. Mine's a little bit different. I'm born and raised in Scarborough, Ontario. Both of my oh. parents are Trinidadian descent. I went to St. Boniface Catholic Secondary School at the intersection of Markham and Eglinton. Markham and Eglinton was a very interesting intersection. M&E, as they called it, was a bad neighborhood at the time. Here's the thing. I went to a Catholic school. All the black kids went to a public school. So my first 10 years, I only grew up with Filipino and white people. In my entire grade, there was... Um, three black people in my entire grade out of 60 kids. And it pretty much remained that way my entire high school career. It was, I think we had two or three people from El Salvador and the rest were white and Filipino. That was all it was split down the middle. So growing up, what had happened is you have a lot of white kids that speak predominantly Polish, was a lot of them Polish and Ukrainian. And so they didn't view themselves as Canadian. They more viewed themselves as Polish. And then you had the Filipinos and they viewed themselves more as Filipino than they did Canadian as well. And then you had me, who I had to identify with mine, which is the Caribbean. So nobody really looked at ourselves as Canadian, and we all kind of played together. Uh, elementary school, uh, I was fortunate enough to be ignorant and have a good childhood where it was, you just played. That's all we did. That's all we did. we come outside and we play. And then what I didn't realize and didn't take into account is... Uh, the fact that I'll never forget um, my mother and father separated God knows when it was before me but I was in grade one and I remember I was uh, six years old and the teacher said uh, you come from a Kenny you know this story uh, I come from because of the fact that I don't have a mother and a father that my home is broken and that my family is broken and then you know it really hit me really hard and then I went home to tell my mother that the teacher said that our family was broken, you know, because of the fact that for them, uh, you know, uh, if you didn't have a mother and a father, that your family didn't really exist. And it was a very painful thing. And a lot of people started to do this thing where they kind of felt pity on you. And, you know, I didn't like that. What I realized later on as I got older was simply that um, a lot of people, they don't mind black people in small amounts. You know what I'm saying? When there was three of us, it was nothing. But then I moved on uh, to, from Markham to Eglinton, I moved into Pitfield. Pitfield is uh, at uh, McCowan and Shepherd, and it's uh, an infamous neighborhood because um, a lot of Drake's entourage is from my neighborhood. And um, in that neighborhood, it was pure black. And it was a completely different shift because my white friends and my Filipino friends would never come to my neighborhood. And we grew up poor and we knew we were poor because we lived in government housing, MTHA. So, you know what I'm saying? If you said MTHA in Scarborough, we knew that meant Metro Toronto Housing Authority. That meant that you had to have less, uh, make a, 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 a certain amount of money that made you and be a single mother to be impoverished and have a certain amount of kids. So everybody in our neighborhood was single parent family with at least three to four kids. My mom had five. Right. And uh, so that was pretty much what it was like in the, in the first 10 years. <clears throat> Crazy, man. It's like everyone's story is so different. Mine is like uh, my, my biological father is black from the States, Minneapolis. Uh, my biological mother from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, white as you can get, like hyper Irish, like this wall. 
Um, he's passing through Halifax. They have a little fling. I, uh, I arrive on the scene, then they decide to split up, and then I'm left with my white grandparents, so her parents, raised in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. So now it's me at like eight, nine years old, massive Afro, all white, older parents who are like, you know, in their late 50s. I'm like nine, eight, whatever. Um, and no one in this city that I know looks like me. No one has hair mm -hmm. like me. I don't have a community or a people. And like Kenny said, you're like, I'm like, I don't have a black community, so I don't feel like I'm part of something like that. And clearly I'm visibly different, so I'm not part of the white community either. So you just feel like you're on this island by yourself. Like you don't really have, like my grandmother, when I had to get a haircut, she's like, uh, yeah, so. I, Where do we start? I guess, what do, I guess we, do I use a knife? Like, I don't, like she had no concept of how to cut an afro. Like it was just insane to her. And nothing but pureness in her heart. She's like, I got to figure this out but this is not like the other kids I raised this is this is really this has got a lot of elasticity to it and it was just I realized too and you know, what I try to explain to people is like people act around young kids like kids don't know you know but I think we can all think back to our own childhood of how you just observe like you you're always taking in information and data and comparing your life and existence to what other people have around you you know what I mean so on top of the fact that my grandparents raised me so that puts me on an island and then I'm also going to be like, oh, there's a black kid. Like what? So when you walk into a room, you automatically own the room. You walk into kindergarten, you walk into grade two, every head turns and it's like, whoa, what's the situation? You're always the center of attention, whether you want to be it or not. You know? <laughs> so that's, and I think that actually enabled me to become a comedian in a way where it was like, you get used to all eyes on you all the time. So you learn to, to own it, to be like, all right, well, I'm going to give you something to look at then. If you're going to stare at me, like I'm going to, I'm going to flip the dynamic and take the power back kind of thing. Mm. Um, but so that was my, my early childhood. And like Kenny, like I, I didn't associate with any group at some point. So it was like, it was just kind of just me on my own kind of thing. And I had lots of kids who just saw me as Trent, like, yeah, let's go play street hockey or let's play soccer or whatever. But there were other kids who were like, like the first time I heard nigger, I was probably eight or nine. And I went crying back to my grandfather and he's like, He's like, it's okay, you know, love is love and all this stuff. But I knew he didn't know what it was like because he's like a white man from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, but he knew it was wrong. And then I thought, it was like 1978, 79. I'm like, how did the kid know to call me that? There's no internet. Like, how, where did he learn the term? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just kind of, but I knew it hurt right away. I knew it made me feel subhuman. I knew it made me feel small. And... Um, and it was just like, but I still remember that very first time for me. I don't know if you guys can recall like the first time you felt that. Like we're Kingston, Ontario just... at a track meet, crossing the street as a truck drive by, slowed down, rolled the window down and yelled out, fuck you niggas. And that was my first time at a track meet when somebody, I mean, like I always, you know, dealt with, you know, police officers and stuff like that. But the first bold, brazen act, because when you're from Scarborough, uh, that's a word that'll get you killed. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? If you're the wrong person in those times, saying nigga, well, there's, no, there's no protest, there's no nothing, there's a fight. Uh, so the first time it happened to me was Kingston, Ontario. Uh, the year was the year 2000. I'll never forget it because it was me and another black kid, and we were crossing the street in our track uniforms, going to the store to get candy. And... The truck goes, fuck you niggers, and then drove off. 
and he looks at me. He was 15 at the time. I was 18. And he looks at me and he goes, was that the first time somebody boldly called you nigger? And I said, yeah. And he goes, it hurt me. And I go, it hurt me too, bro. And that was the first time when, you know, we had that honest moment where we always knew racism exists, but we never had it physically applied to us. Uh, and when it happened, it was, it was a rude awakening that this is not just uh, something that you see on a TV show or in a rap video. This shit is real. So that was yeah. my first time, and I'll never forget it. That was yeah. when it happened. The year Paul 2000, Mooney calls it Get Your Nigger Wake Up Call. Yeah, uh, yeah. it was. <laughs> it was. And it wasn't the last time. No. You know, I mean, the thing about where I grew up in Chicago, I had to learn context of yeah. the word. Right. You know, it's like if Lamar said, nigga, you drank up all the Kool-Aid. Well, guess what? Then I knew that nigga drank up all the Kool-Aid. Mm. But then when somebody says, look at them niggers drinking up all the Kool-Aid, then you learn it was a whole different jar of Kool-Aid you was drinking then, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, Context, sure. you learn that quick. But, you know, in Chicago, you know, I remember as a kid, they'd be doing jump rope. And, you know, I like coffee, I like tea, I like a white boy, and he like me. Hey, white boy, you don't shine. Here come a color boy to beat you behind. And then we used to have shit like, I ain't a nigger, I'm a Negro. When I turn into a nigger, I'll let you know. So it was, you know, it was at our playground nursery rhymes. But the context is, you know, I remember uh, blacks would fight if you called, so, called each other an African or called each other black. Oh. Oh, the, 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 the self-hate on just the expression of, you know, Martin Luther King had to die before it was okay to be black. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting because I heard it in music and in movies for the longest time. Obviously knew, like, you know, Kenny's talking about context. You'd see it in a movie or in like a, in a TV series and you realize they're trying to use it to show hatred and stuff like that. But we were using it as dumb African kids. We were using it in school because we had just discovered um, hip 90s hip-hop and everyone was using it. And so we felt comfortable throwing it around and, and we didn't fully understand the context of it. And it didn't really matter to us because no one, you know, even if someone used it angrily, it was still another black person using it angrily. But I will say, having not grown up here, uh, having moved to Canada and gone to a small town, I quickly caught up all the years that I missed out on the word. Like it's if you real. if you yeah. want crash, if crash you, course right off yeah, the top. Yeah. If you want a crash course, if they're like, oh, you haven't heard this word hatefully in 18 years, niggas come to Peterborough and we will give it to you on like a week on a weekly basis, we'll give you like a PhD level. Yeah. Niggas for the, dummies one on one. Yeah, the grocery yeah. grocery stores, like 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 Sterling yeah. said, uh trucks driving down the street. Because the thing about a small a small university town is that there's a core of the city where everyone sort of lives, as in most students. Mm -hmm. And and the moment you step outside that sort of perimeter. It's like one of, in the movies when they're like, hey, if you step outside the perimeter, we don't know what's out there. We don't know what, like, it's this unknown. So anytime you went into a neighborhood that wasn't one of the sort of, like, curated ones. At risk. Yeah, yeah. You, you'd That's be like I said. Yeah. But I always tell the people here in Edmonton, I go, this is Edmonton, but out there is Alberta. And it's <laughs> crazy out there. I can tell you right now, man, it is no joke. My very first one, experience in Alberta was in Evansburg. I went to go do the show out with Stephanie Foley and um, 
And when I went to the bathroom to go pee, this guy stands next to me and he goes, typically, we don't like your kind around here. But tonight you did a good job. So me and the boys decided it was okay if you sleep here tonight. Jesus Christ. And I came out of the bathroom and you can ask them. I came out the bathroom. I told them what happened. The owner of the bar was like, come on, it's not a big deal. And I got in my car and I drove home because I don't need them to sober up and realize, how did we let that guy stay? Right. Get your ass over so that. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't trying to, you know what I'm saying? But that's a real thing that happened to me. Evansburg, Alberta, first year of comedy. Uh, Stephanie Foley was middling. And what's his name that's always in controversy now? Uh, white dude from Calgary again? Um, Daryl Mack. Daryl Mack. He's from Winnipeg he originally, yeah. So it was Daryl <laughs> Mack, Stephanie Foley, and me on my third ever gig in Evansburg, Alberta. Population is 550. I knew that because that's what's on the fucking yeah. side on the way in. And they let me know, you're not welcome here. Yeah, Daryl probably said, "How about you just let him stay overnight?" <laughs> exactly, and 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 the thing about that you that experience is the calmness of it. Because I had a yeah. similar thing in London, Ontario, about two years after I started doing stand-up. Um, uh, the the uh, the 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 comedy clubs didn't want to send the um, the seasoned headliners to go do summer shows because summer was quieter and they just didn't want to pay people to go out there. So yep. they got us rookies, because I've been doing stand-up for maybe a year at that point, um, maximum two years. And they said, you, we're going to send you there every Friday, Saturday, and you're going to do 30 minutes when I only had seven. Uh, but we'll give you 50 bucks. And at that point, I was like, yes, please, anything for the stage time. <laughs> yeah. And one night, there's, we're doing a show. It's actually a pretty full room. And there's three guys sitting in the middle, you know, just where the spotlight ends like where you can see the middle of the room and then you can't see everything behind that there's these three guys they're just staring one of them is just arms folded staring at me the entire half hour i'm on stage and i'm like this guy's kind of weird but i you know put things back in my mind i don't have enough experience at that time to sort of notice these things we finished the show everyone else on the show it was me paul smith uh the late Paul Smith and John Key, who's a, a Korean Canadian uh, Canadian comic, and uh, and I forget who the third other comic. Was. Anyways, they were all smokers at the time, so they went outside to smoke. And because I was by myself in the green room, I was like, "I'll go smoke with you guys." Except for the fact that the smoking section was right in front of the club. So as they're smoking, people are filing out after the show, and two of the guys walk up, and I realize they're wearing the leather vests, the patches, as they call them. And uh, they come up to us and they go, hey, guys, great show. We really enjoyed the show. And I had, I had closed out the show. So they turned to me and they go, hey, um, we personally enjoyed your show, but our friend is upstairs complaining. He hated your show. And uh, he would suggest you leave now because when he comes downstairs, he's definitely going to try and start some trouble and will have no choice but to take his side. That was the tone they used. That was the yep. level of calm. It wasn't like, but it was so sinister that I yep. turned to John because John was driving and I go, we need to go now. He goes, oh, I wanted to say bye. I'm like, no, 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 no. We yeah. need to leave 
And the good thing, it was like summertime, so we didn't have like jackets upstairs or any oh, shit no. like that. Right. We got into the car. The car was parked right in front of the club. As we're backing out onto the street, third guy, angry guy, comes out of the main door, sees me in the passenger seat, and just starts screaming, screaming, fuck you, nigga, fuck you. And he's just screaming. And we peel off and we ride. And we're silent for maybe the first half hour of this two-hour journey back to Toronto. And then John goes... What did you say in your act that really, and it just, and that was like the only, like, like, I know John, I know, I know John too, and I could hear his voice in my head, like, as he's dropping that after a dead silence. Like, I gotta go back and get my merch. Yeah. Yeah. I got t shirts. man is not our ally. And, and, and the thing was, like, everyone in the car obviously was terrified. And the silence was more of like, we don't know what to say. Like we yeah. genuinely yeah. don't understand what just happened. Drive fast. Because I didn't, I didn't even know what happened. Yeah, how do you process it, right? Like, Aisha, how yeah. about you? Like, what was? Do you remember the first time or like an instance where you're like, did that just happen? Like your first time or one that like Arthur There's, share? The first time I remember feeling dehumanized, like as a black person, I remember being in I think it was seventh grade, and I had this teacher who. I think it was like history geography, you know, how they used to just clump those subjects together. And he was floating around theories to the class. And I'm the only black person in class. And he said, uh, um, you know, there's some um, evolutionary theories that black people are closely related to primates, like to monkeys. And I remember saying like, well, it, evolution is this theory that we all come from that origin. And he said, yeah, but there's some people who believe that black people are just more monkey-like. And I'm not saying that's the case, but there's some scientists. And he was like defending it hard. And it was one of those moments where I'm like, I am alone and I am being compared to a monkey. And yeah, and I, I didn't know... I didn't know how to respond as a child because you know you you're brought up especially in this school you you just kind of expected authority automatically and i i feared authority automatically but i went home and i talked to my dad about it and normally i never wanted my dad to come to school but he came to school the very next day and explained to this man why you can't float racist theories out to children and pretend it's science or fact or history, even if it's just a fun discussion topic. That's not a fun discussion topic when you have a black kid in class. And, you know, the, the one thing about my dad is, I, I, I mean, he's, he's smart. He's a, he's a scientist. He's a chemist. He's not, he's not going to come in there ranting and raving. He's going to come in there and scientifically tell you why you're an idiot. So he was able to defend me, but I, you know, every now and then I'll read these stories of kids in school who are told who they are is wrong. Like every year, there's several stories about little black kids being told your hair is wrong, who you mm -hmm. are is wrong. Like I didn't start wearing my hair natural until I was 21 because it just never occurred to me that it was an option because in my mind, I was like, no, the, the way that I'm looked at as acceptable i need to burn my scalp in order to straighten it yeah i gotta mm -hmm. i gotta get a chemical relaxer and then burn it with heat just in order to and and it's it's weird too because it's not until i i went to public school because i was 
eventually booted out of private school because I just wasn't, I wasn't good at anything to do with private school. And I went to public school in Scarborough, uh, Woburn. And, oh, yeah. oh, oh. <laughs> and that school demographically couldn't have been more opposite than my, I felt like Carlton had been transferred to West Philadelphia. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you. Wasn't my, it crazy though? Cause like I went to Jean Vanier from St. Boniface to only having right. white and Filipino. I went to Jean Vanier, which was the predominant, there was three predominantly black, technically black high schools, Jean Vanier, Mother Teresa, and uh, Francis Lieberman out of the Catholic schools that is. Yeah. And Vanier was black. And that's the first time I felt comfortable bringing, you know, curry chicken and stuff to, to school. Right. Because now they're like, yo, Reggie, you have a curry chicken? Before <laughs> I had to hide it. Because yeah. all the kids were like, what is that? That stinks. While they're eating their Different. bologna sandwich with mustard, here that's I so am good. with my curry chicken and rice and a roti. And they're like, ew. But you know what I'm saying? And I had to hide those things about me. But again, as a child, uh, we were just focusing on trying to be, I, I will say that my childhood from zero to 10 was innocent in the sense that we were blocked from all of these negativities. It Correct. wasn't until high school that I actually saw race divide. Yeah, because- I, I, I believe firmly in yeah. elementary that we were all, that we didn't see color. I believed that when we were in elementary. But then when I went to high school, if you go into the cafeteria, the Filipinos had one table, the mm -hmm. Polish people had one table, uh, the Italians had their area, which usually mixed with the Polish people, the Caribbean people had one, and, and the Caribbean people had the other, and then you had the misfits. Later right. on, we had a lot of uh, East Indian people come in, and then they made their other group, but everybody stayed segregated yeah. to their colors, because for the first time, I think, you know, not just to say about being racist, but I think they just had never had that uh amount Protection. of culture that they can relate to before yeah. because that's how i felt i was so excited to see so many i never had 30 black friends before right well that's like and that's the culture shock because i would say as i, I used to think because my dad used to kind of tell us you kids are colorblind you don't understand you don't see blah 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 i don't know that i was colorblind necessarily i was just kind of um unknowingly internalizing a lot of bullshit you know, like yes. I didn't realize until I was around other black people that I smile too much. And the reason I smile too much is to make white people comfortable, which is a hard realization to come to in like later in life is that a lot of my manners are about making other people more comfortable with me. And, yeah. and knowing, I mean, I've been around, I've been in those spaces, those you're one of the good one spaces. And part of you is embarrassed that they thought that they could say that to you and you'd take it as a compliment. And the other part of you is relieved that they're treating you with enough respect to, to not injure you or harm you. Like, well, at least I'm yep. acting as a good one enough so that they're not going You're to. You're articulate. Right. Yeah, like I yeah. yeah. have the white voice. Yeah. Like, I found like I... the white voice, I have my white voice. Like I'm talking to you guys right now, but the minute I pick up the phone, it's, hey, how's it going? Good, yeah, good yeah. to see you. Super awesome. <laughs> I'm all with you. Yeah, let's do it. I've and got like, great credit. Yes, as, as yes, I will. Sounds, growing up black, you had to learn how to put on your white voice. Right. And if well, you didn't know how to put on your white voice, it definitely affected any kind of customer service over the phone, any kind of uh, thing. My name is Sterling Scott. My mom knew what she was doing. My name sounds white as fuck. 
So Dude. when they put my name on applications and then you talk to me on the phone and I'm like, yeah, yeah of course, I got you. No, my name's Sterling, S-T-E-R. I wish you guys had told me this Love ya. Super when I was awesome. in the immigration line. <laughs> and then when I come in, they're like, did you drop Sterling off? Like, what's going on here? Yeah. Dude, I've walked into interviews and they go, uh, Sterling Scott? And I go, yep. And they go, okay, um, it's going to be a bit. We'll be right out with you. Yeah, dude, I'm playing shows in Texas, and they're like, this next act, give it up from Canada, Trent McClellan. And then I walk out, 6'3", black guy, and they're like, where's the Scottish? What, like, like <laughs> minds are blown. Like, what? That name sounds like you wrote Western novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, he, did, he mug, did he mug the real Trent McClellan and, like, just That's do a spot? Like, me. so you, you, you're right. You do walk around in this skin and almost feel like you have to be somewhat of a chameleon well, blend into different situations. We police our own. We police ourselves to the comfort of other people all the time. Yes, we do. I, I, I've never had a job where I haven't had to say something about a situation and make sure the other person wasn't afraid I was calling them a racist. Like, how do I explain why this joke? or this, this turn of phrase is offensive to me without offending your genteel sensibilities. Like that right. is, and it's a thing that it, it's hard to explain, but it's like, it, I feel like that's something my dad who grew up in Jamaica and like Arthur, pe the important people around him were black. So he never had this uh, having to worry about people's feelings until he really came to Canada. But, you know, I feel like my dad is not, as sensitive as maybe his children are and will cuss people more readily than than i will like he's a lot more comfortable getting real with people but he's you know he worked at ontario hydro he was he was made a chemistry manager in the 90s of a chem lab and people didn't like his promotion and they hung up a black doll in effigy because of it that's that crazy. worth a half a million dollar settlement now yeah easily <laughs> you know his his response to it was to not do anything because he didn't want them to win. And as a child, I was like, how do you not do anything? Yeah. You have to tell somebody. But in his mind, he's like, no, if I engage, I'm the bad guy. Right. I'm I'm the target if I even acknowledge this, which well, is- If that happened to me, I would have brought the doll home for my child. It worked, Amy, for you. It's so interesting, uh, Aisha, when you say like, you, we, the, your dad, uh, sort of growing up in a in a different place, you don't have the 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 need to make sort of white people uh, comfortable with your presence. Mm -hmm. It's it's actually very telling because I realized when I moved here, most of my friends were also foreign students of different you know shades and races or whatever, but they were all we were all foreigners, and we it we couldn't make Canadian friends. We just we left. We had a whole undergraduate experience. And we left with maybe two or three Canadian friends because any time they would say something offside, we would call them out on it immediately right. and immediately sort of be sent to like to the you know go to your little foreign student corner and hang out there if you can't take this <laughs> this this you know this innocent joke that I made. Right. I would either mock them or whatever, and I realized much much. I think I only realized when I started doing comedy because I realized that that was not the usual thing. Right. Right? So, cause, so then I just opted to like, just keep quiet. Right. I want to fire yeah. this thing. Sorry, go ahead, Deesha. 
Oh, no, I was just going to say there's this thing happening now where people are digging back into the 90s and the early 2000s and being like, hey, remember when Jimmy Fallon did blackface? <laughs> you know, yeah, like they're, right. they're yeah. looking at all these old comics who, who did blackface. And, re and but I, I'm not so concerned about the comics themselves. I, I feel like it was in poor taste. I, I'm more concerned about the one black person in the room who was like, do I tell them that this is crazy? Or like who had to sit there and be like, well, if I say something, I lose my job. Yep. If I say something, I become a problem that has to be handled. My daughter's dealing with that now. Yeah. Job. And you know, cause you know, I'm light skinned and I, you know, I watered down my roots by hooking up with white women again. No, it's <laughs> so much easier. So, um, so, you know, you wouldn't know my children had any blackness unless I came to pick them up or you go look at their little nigger nostrils. Then that's so, you know, my kids want to speak up and then she's got to worry about her job. So I said, don't you worry about it, baby girl. I will I will walk through the muck for you mm -hmm. and you just keep on getting paid. And it's our surprise. But look, did you know I only learned how to smile or laugh or grin on stage three years ago? Because for my whole career, I associated me smiling on stage as Tommen. Right. Now that's reverse Ooh. fucking hatred. Yeah, when, yeah, yeah. When a man, when a man don't even want to smile because I was afraid I'd look like Jimmy Walker. Yeah. So I yeah. skipped that. Even while tell, I had this big agent from LA say, you're so, uh, you don't show any vulnerability. I said, I can't afford to be vulnerable. And, you know, so for like, you know, for like 38 years, I've got all the, the outgoing charm of Miles Davis with these crowds. If I smiled back in the 80s, I could have maybe got invited to some festivals. Yeah, they yeah. always thought I was the angry, you know, deliver the line without the smile. Without Now I laugh because I'm saying such terrible shit and they accept it. Right. But back then, for the you know, like I said, until three years ago, you won't see many pictures of me smiling. I, I still can't smile for a headshot. Okay, Kenny, give us a big smile. <laughs> <laughs> I want to like I, I, that's amazing, man, because it's like because we all get in our heads about it. Like we all are in there overthinking every single thing we're doing and what the scenario is. And this is something that I've been trying to unpack over the last couple of years. And I don't know if it's gonna um, if you guys relate to this, but. Uh, I felt like at the age that you suffer the pain, if you don't process it, then you remain that age. You know what I mean? Like you don't emotionally evolve because you have scars or wounds from like when you were nine or 10. And then that shapes the decisions you make as an adult, unless you like actually spend time, whether that's therapy or like, what, I don't know what you might do. Like you meditate, you go to church, you talk to somebody about it, but you have those still moments to sit down and go like, man, like that, that was some shit that I had to deal with. But I, I realized now, like I kept myself really small in a lot of ways where I was like, I don't want to kind of own any kind of blackness. Cause I want to kind of try and blend in. I don't want to, uh, I'm six foot three. I'm going to be a center of attention. I'm going to try and stay small. Anyway. It's ridiculous. Like it's absolutely, but you're in your own head doing all these things, as you said, kind of subconsciously to just not rock the boat. Not only that, my family dynamics was such that, seismic things would happen in our house and it was just like did you pass the potatoes uh like just no one's gonna talk about the fact that my grandfather just whatever you know what i mean it was just like and so i learned this culture of like kind of all right don't rock shit just work hard keep your head down and i'm only unpacking that stuff now like in my 40s i'm starting to unpack this shit of like oh i play it small for a long time i don't know if you can relate to that at all but somebody throw you a basketball hit you in the chest bounces the way you just look at it 
Don't well, dude, Kenny, get this, Kenny, get this. When I was, I'll just say this quick, and then you guys can add in. We had a new teacher at our high school. He's doing attendance day one, his first day. He's doing all the names. He's like Trent McClellan. I'm like, he goes, you must play basketball, yeah? And I'm like, <laughs> am I, and he, and like I'm talking about in your head now. So I go, I go, I do play basketball. How does he know I play basketball? Is it because I'm tall? I'm sitting down. He wouldn't even know I'm tall. Is it the hair? Like, and all of a sudden, I'm just like, he's right. And here I am just overthinking the shit out of it. Like, is it? No. It could, he's a teacher, right? He wouldn't say something. I, I, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. First, I don't, I'm still trying to. Your first day in school, you're the basketball captain. Never yeah, even yeah. seen him. Yeah. It's like that movie, right? Like, yeah, we got McClellan. Like, I thought I said, I already play. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. sure you're yeah. with us. Let's go. So, you throw anyway, the just, ball underhand at the net. <laughs> I just run with the basketball down the court. Like, why yeah. is he? He's horrible. But it was like, just, you're right. It's those head games that we get into ourselves that you never verbalize. You never openly talk about. It's just you're constantly in your head overthinking every single thing the clothes you wear how you talk how you act in a certain situation what you let pass i don't know if you guys can relate to that if you had those experiences yeah. but i've had the worst one it'll probably get me i'm gonna say it because i i hate when people don't say things because of the fact that they don't want to lose work i'm gonna probably lose work for what i'm about to say right now but fuck it you make uh, your own work brother don't you worry about the white you know man's work. i was uh i was on the ig tour and what's that city outside Gananoque? I was in Gananoque doing the IG tour. And when I came off stage, the handler uh, came and approached me and he showed me an email from one of the people who were organizing the event. And the event organizer said, uh, it's enough that we already have to deal with the fact that he's black. Do we have to be reminded that we were slave owners? We did not enjoy him. They were talking about me. And then so they asked me, could you make your set less black? That happened like to me, Gananoque, and I was furious to the point where I called him because, you know, he, he did this to me via email. And I was like, that's the most racist goddamn comment I've ever heard in my life. And he's trying to do damage control now. He was like, because he's like, Sterling, do you mind, you know, taking out certain bits that include race? Can you just keep it to, you know? And I said, I go, listen, y'all already paid me and I already spent that money. <laughs> so I'm going to do what you say because I can't lose the money. But I need you to understand that that was the most racist goddamn thing I've ever heard. And he's like, no, 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 no. No, it's not that it's racist. It's just that he was. And then, then he, he calls me on the phone. And he's like, you know, some people are going to be, you know, we're dealing with rich white people. Some people are going to be racist. And I'm like, oh, so you're justifying this. No, Sterling, I'm not. And then I can see that he's fighting in between. How do I deal with this young and black how do I not have a lawsuit? Job? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And so I'll be honest, the uncomfortableness with him trying to play through all of this uh, and damage control it, I just let it go. I said, listen to me. I'll tell you what. I'll pull out every single joke that has to do with skin color, religion, race, whatever. Mind you, the other comics can do anything they want. Yep. You know what I'm saying? But me. And I was on tour with Adam Christie, and uh, what's his name again? Beautiful guy, Jeff McHenry, right? And they can tell you, they, you have to do 20 minutes each, right? They can tell you on that tour, they asked me to revamp my set six times. Wow. Six times they said, Sterling, 
great set. Mind you, I'm getting standing ovations. And if you don't believe me, ask these people. But then they'd come and be like, all right, so here's what you're not allowed to say. Here's what you're not allowed to say. Here. And then one night, they asked Adam Christie to take to change one of his jokes. And he sits down next to me and he goes, hey, Sterling, I got to say, we've been on this tour for a while. And this is the first time they asked me to change a joke. And it really hurt me to change this joke. Right. And I'm looking at you, and they've asked you to do different entire sets, and yet you still keep going. And I go, yeah, because this is what my life is like all the time. If my Afro is out, white people feel more comfortable around me. If really? I have my hair in braids and I'm wearing a hat, they are scared shitless of me. Is if it? I yeah. am not wearing a suit, which is why you're like, why do I wear the suit? Is because it puts, I know what I look like. If, I, if you see me walking down the street, I look very professional. The description y. I look like I fit the description. Kenny remembers from back in the young days when I used to show up in red shirts with red hats turned backwards. And gang Kenny colors. Goes, exactly. Kenny, like, you look like you in some gang shit. And I was like, I'm just matching my hat with my shirt with my shoes. <laughs> Change my appearance because I would hear things like this Don't you do that? You're going to scare white people. Don't you wear a do-rag in public. You're going to scare white people. Make sure that you don't, don't talk like that. You're going to scare white people. Well, that's because like, I, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but it, it's making me think about all the, the cons I mean, as a comic, we all know you change one word in a joke and it can kill the joke or it can make it huge. So right. I feel like comics of color have this other layer where we always have to consider if I deliver this joke straight faced, it might scare somebody. So yeah. I have to add a kind of good humor I don't necessarily feel in this moment so that the intent and the context doesn't turn people off. I can be gritting. Yeah. Be gritting. People can never pull off Anthony Jeselnik. If we try right. to do Anthony Jeselnik, deadpan, dead face, killing baby, raping people, that motherfucker is getting kicked off stage immediately. I mean, it's it's stressful because I've been dealing a little bit with a, a little bit, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome and I feel like it hits black comics in Canada very hard because when you are a black person, the only one in a space, you all of a sudden wonder, am I entitled to this space or am I just here to check a box? And there's no way that that doesn't impact your psyche. There's no way it doesn't impact Y'all, let me tell you this now, in case you don't ever get to see a psychiatrist, each and every one of you, 100% bona fide, qualified fucking killers, okay? That's why when I look at this picture, I'm so fucking proud of each and every one of you. So you don't ever have to fucking think that you're a check box. You know the only box you get to check? I'm a bad motherfucker. That's the box that each and every one of you get to check, okay? And that's from the Godfather. This is the thing. This Blood is why God. Kenny and Nubian are a staple for, for Black comics, because it's the only place where we get to feel that unequivocally. You well, just, I didn't accept no yes. mediocrity. Yeah. Right. Yep. Well, you, you realize you're judged on merit, and it's pure. It's like you don't have to think about... Well, I You're just doing this. But I, I got this when I and started. You know, sorry, and you don't have to explain the context of your joke to oblivion. You're right, speaking no. to an audience who already gets your point of view, so you're not killing it with extra words to be like, see, as a black person, do you guys know what naps are? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I also hate that when you're black, they expect things of you. Right. Like, 
uh, my voice, it doesn't sound like the stereotypical black voice they would hear. And it's funny because even in black crowds, uh, they, in America, when I went to America to go audition for when uh, Def Jam was coming back up, I was sitting down with two comedians who knew me and they said, so Sterling, are you going to black it up? And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you a nigga, but you ain't a nigga nigga. You know what I'm saying? Like they expect you to be a certain kind of, you know what I'm saying, man, motherfucker, I broke his shit. I grew up in a country with a superior educational system. And as my father says, we speak the King's English. Or as the brothers that you hung out with in Chicago said, that funny talking nigga, you know? So Yeah, they get mad at me for not saying nigga on stage. I personally don't try to make this no big platform for people to say, but I feel the word nigga is disrespectful. I don't call people nigga. I don't... and I don't refer to myself as one, and I don't say it on stage. And the reason why I don't say it on stage is quite simply, I believe, this is my personal belief, I believe when I say it on stage, that I empower the audience to now say it back to me when I come mm. off stage. Because if I'm on stage going, nigga, 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 the first thing that these white people are gonna say to me when I come off stage is, you a show, nigga. nigga. Yeah. But when I never you say it. it I, I think that's putting, that's taking on blame that I don't. I think if a white person is going to say nigger, they're going to say it regardless of whether you give them permission to or not. Yeah, that's true too. Like, I'll say. I mean, in my actual real life, it is very rare that I need to say nigger. But if I do need to say it, I feel like I'm allowed to, and I want. And I, anyone who tells me that I'm not, I want to. I, I want to tell them there are very few privileges that we have in, in terms right. of like a birthright. There's not a lot that I'm born into that I can, like, I'll look young for a while, great. And I can say nigger. And I'm taking those two. And I'm <laughs> well, here's the thing. I agree with what you're saying that they were going to say nigger anyways. But yeah. in Alberta, Trent, you can understand what I'm talking about when I say this. In Alberta, we have high levels of racism, but they don't want to be exposed as racist. Hold so on. if they think that it's going to be called out, they'd rather not say it and keep it to the small pack of friends they have when they get in the car. Because they want to walk around, they like to enjoy the black comedy, enjoy the black culture, and be racist in private. They don't want it in public. So if they see that I'm confident and acceptable of the word nigger, they'll think, oh, he's not gonna be offended by it. But if I never say it, now mind you, they're gonna say it either which way, but one time is in the car, and one time is to my face. That's like why, who don't say nigger on stage, have never been called nigger off stage while still at the show. I've been outside. Okay, that's right. a lot. I've been on stage when the right. person's yelling at me, calling me nigger. I had to, had to throw people out because they calling me nigger. I had to have be escorted outside because they were calling me nigger. But I'm talking about somebody who thinks it's okay. Like they're saying it in like, hey nigger, we're friends. Yeah. Right. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. That's I like the time, one time I, I did a gig in self-preservation. I, I, like, I respect I agree it. with you. I, I, I yeah. agree with you that it is self-preservation. I am not disagreeing with you on that. Oh, yeah, I'm no, I'm agreeing with you 100%. The, I'm the, saying the, that the I, amount of times that they say nigga, because mm-hmm. people, white people will say nigga to you. Think, if you say nigga all the time, they'll say nigga to you thinking, I'm saying it as your friend. That's what they're say, thinking, right? I, and I hear what you're saying. And I don't want that, because I don't want nobody yeah. calling me nigga. Well, that's I, like the time in their view one I'm time. I'm going to be an advocate for like, no, you have to say it. <laughs> you know, say what you feel comfortable saying. I just think 
there's this thing that bothers me where like if remember the, the jogger who was murdered um mm -hmm. Ahmad, uh, Avery, Arbery, and for a second people thought he was a robber i mean nobody with any sense thought that but for a second people were like let's wait till we hear all the facts and they thought he was robbing this construction site and they said and and then when it was debunked he went back to being a victim again there are some people who think you as a black person are to blame if you are not an angel if you are not obama on the cross so i don't blame you sterling i don't live in alberta and i imagine if i lived in i know i police my i live in toronto and i police myself um but i i do it does bother me that we have to do this it bothers me that i have to change my behavior so that if somebody hurts me i can say it's their fault it is always right. their fault. Yes. yeah I, I feel like i agree uh, with you I'll tell you this story real quick and then um, you guys jump in. Like with stand-up, when I first started, I remember doing those yucks workshops, you know, where you do the hour and the, like the headliner tells you about horrible road stories and whatever. And then uh, every now and then they do a quick scan of all the people. I'm like, um, yeah, most of you here aren't going to make it. And uh, <laughs> here's why. And the guy's going around the room and he, and he gets to a female comic and he goes, just so you know, it's going to be really tough for you. Okay, it's going to be really tough for you on the road yeah. and small town is going to be tough. He turns to me and he goes, you're a black dude playing like Western Canada, Alberta. It's going to be tough. There's a lot of racism. So, uh, yeah, you got your work cut out for you. And I was like, all right. Like, and I'm literally like just, you know, like no I'm lie, like. though, but no I'm, lie. That's real. Too, it's I'm not too a much. No, but here's the switch. So it's two months in. I'm like taking notes, literally like, okay, tough racism, like whatever. <laughs> Three years later, I put my head down. I've just gone to work. I've like busted my ass, whatever. I start getting things. I start you know, getting festivals and start getting opportunities, comedy now, whatever. That same comic goes, you know why he got that though, right? Uh, who was that? I'm going to win the mean? fuck out of him. <laughs> and I was like, I and I'm like, so you can't it. win. It's like, you can't win. It's like, so first it was a, it was an anchor, right? And now it's like, oh, the same thing. Yeah, but you got the, the black. Like, yeah. so who was like, that motherfucker? Fuck, it was just Yo. like, he's dead and gone, so. He's dead Fred, and gone. That yeah. is exactly what happened to me in Edmonton. Because in Edmonton, <laughs> they would say to you, Sterling is only funny because he's black. Right. And then they used to say to me, um, his material isn't funny. It's just that he's blacking it up. So right. the always reason why that. I went to the San Francisco International Comedy Center in 2013, I was, what, four or five years in comedy. My goal was I'm going to leave Canada and I'm going to test my material against the best in America in places where I am at a disadvantage because all of them are on their home turf. So they get political jokes. They get local jokes. They get the, the colloquialisms. They get all that shit. I have nothing but the material I crafted and I beat the fuck out of them. When That's I came home that room. year, yeah, I beat the shit out of everybody. When I came home, do you know what they said to me when I went on stage? Sterling, your material is so much better. And I said, I haven't written a new joke in three fucking years. <laughs> Don't you ever let anybody know that. You know what I'm saying? But the, well, I just that was say, back then, right? But like the same jokes that they said were only funny because I'm black. And you, I'm talking about straight up Rick Bronson. I'm talking Dino. I'm talking any comedian. If you ask them about Sterling Scott from five years back, from, from five years into my career, they will always say Sterling was just black. And I said, cool. Maybe Which one of my jokes were black jokes? Which one of my jokes were black jokes? Well, all of them, because you're a black man. That's what you're a black about. man. And that's the thing. 
they, if you're a black writer, no then your material is black. There should then, be no shame about the the point of view that you have, because people always want to make us feel bad for coming from a point of view of viewing certain moments of. Because when when we when when we look at a moment, and when a white person looks at a we look at looks at that exact moment we will see two different things, okay? Like, we will see, like, there's that clip going around right now of a woman, a, a white woman who was uh, looting one of the stores. She was carrying, like, six bags out of this clothing store, and the white uh, news reporter said, uh, well, I hope she's an employee of the store. I'm like, which employee do you know lives with nine bags of merchandise on their way home after shopping no it's a looter but she's a white woman and so you have to find these lips of logic as to why she's doing this right. illegal right. thing whereas if she was a black woman immediately you look to, to what aisha was talking about where it's like you have to justify and that's why i hate the, this idea with people being like showing these videos of like you know black kids hugging white kids or, or black people hugging white cops. And the idea is that if we're all loving and kumbaya, it's like, no, no, no. I just want to be able to mind my own business yeah. without you being in it. I don't, we don't have to love each other. I don't Believe have to hug alone. you for you to see me as another human being. But to go back to something you, you, you talked about, um, and Kenny, I appreciate you. You know, I love you because you have given us a platform and you're one of the first people who ever said to me, listen, you are a killer. The, the idea of, of tokenism and the idea of, of what Aisha was talking about, how you feel like an imposter can happen at the same time, and they will be both sort of true. And I'll give you an example. And I, I was talking to Patrick here about this because we forgot who the person was because the person who was involved doesn't do comedy anymore. And so we're trying to figure out who it was. But uh, the year that I got Halifax Comedy Festival the first time, I also got Winnipeg. And, and they happened in the same month, and it was a big deal, for me at least. Yeah. And so when I came home, I had to do a club weekend, a Yuck Yucks. And it was in Mississauga. I was the middle for someone. And Patrick, because uh, Patrick lives in Mississauga, he came over to say hi and asked me how the festivals had gone, because we hadn't seen each other pretty much the whole month. And, you know, Patrick and I are fairly, are fairly close and we were hanging out and I was just trying to tell him, you know, this is what it's like. And we just basically being like, this is the blueprint for you to go on and do it yourself, you know, next year. Friends exchanging notes. And exactly. Yeah. And while, while we're doing it, the headliner walks over and goes, what are you guys talking about? And I tell him and he goes, oh, you got Halifax this year? It's like, wow, that's crazy. Like I've been doing this for like, you know, blank, blank many more years than you and I've never been invited. And so in my mind, what I want to say is don't put your pain on me. Like, I, I, this is none of my business. Like, you deal with that. I don't. But I can't say that. I'm a middle act. You know, I'm not going to talk to a headliner like that. That's so I just, I again, going back to, I just kept quiet. And he turns to Patrick and he says, uh, uh, you probably get in before I do. Because Patrick was saying he hadn't done it. And I said, cause so, so then I said, well, actually, um, I was there with Graham Chinnenden and Jeff McHenry, who are both of my sort of peer class. We all started around the same time. And he goes, oh, but those guys are funny. And oh. that's, that's when I realized that this conversation has to end. 
because right. I'm going to curse you out. Yes. Probably get physical. Yes. And then that's a whole host of other problems that I don't need in my life. Right. So then I just walked away. But the, 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 the pain of that moment of like dismissive being like, no, 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 those guys got in on merit, even though they've been doing comedy as, as, as long as you have. And, and I've been doing comedy for longer than both of them. They got in on merit. You got in because of your skin color. And I was like, no, I got in on merit. I'm fine. Now, this is where it flips because they had us, the year that I was there, I was there with Roy Day. And they had us each do seven minutes of shows. Sorry, two different seven-minute sets. And the final broadcast had, um, I remember I counted this, so it was uh, 36 plus nine, so it would have been 45 seconds of me and zero seconds of Roy out of 28 minutes of comedy that they had asked us to come and do, I got 45 seconds of screen time, including a nine second clip that just showed the premise of a joke, not the punchline. And, and Roy didn't get any. And the idea is you get the grants for inviting us to be there, mm-hmm. but you, they don't have to air you. They don't have to broadcast you. Yep. And it was a learning um, moment. And I remember just being like, Wow. Okay. This game is different. It's, it's people this questioning your merit that is so offensive. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I add fabulous Kenny Robinson to my name. I added right. the fabulous as a fuck you to anybody that want to question my merit, you know? Right. And a couple of things about, about um, I remember like one time I played Fairview and I, you know, Kenny Robinson out West ain't nothing but a barn burner. Taking no <laughs> prisoners. Uh, I'm shooting people in the face. I've been there. And, I've and been it ain't there. nothing but. And uh, so this drunk comes up to buy two of my cassette tapes. Cassette tapes tells you how long ago. There it place. is. There it is. And, yeah. uh, and the guy said, the bartender said, you're the biggest, funniest nigger you ever seen. And you know what? You are the biggest, funniest nigger you ever seen. And at first I was kind of taken back. Like, am I mad at the bartender for bigging me up? Or, you know, and I, so instead I thanked the man for his $20 and I put it in my pocket knowing that the funniest, biggest nigger he ever seen got $20 more than he did before the night started, you know. But two things about, uh, about the word nigger I want to mention. First time Dick Gregory got booked into the Playboy Club. He was a last minute fill in. And uh, I read this in his uh, first book called Nigger. Um, you know, Hugh Hefner says, hey, you, I think you're very intelligent because he, he's playing all the nightclubs in Chicago. But the Playboy Club was like one of the big scores. So they booked him in and there is this big group of salesmen from the South. So he's in, he's in, so first time he's playing the Playboy Club, he's got a room full of Southern crackers, 1964. So, you know, back when they're still throwing rocks at King, much less he has a dream. They say, give me that dream. So anyway, Dick Gregory walks out and he's, his opening line was, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I have a deal with the management here at the club that, um, that uh, each time anybody in the audience says the word nigger, I will receive an additional uh, $5. So please, on a count of three, everybody. So then, you know, they stared for a minute, then they all started laughing and he broke the ice with that, you know? And then he was a regular since then and then other stuff came from it. But, you know, you're saying like, Arthur, I heard the story about when you, you know, when you got, when you got dealt with in London by them bikers. And, you know, I, I break out in hives when I hear motorcycles because I, I was in this one bar in Winnipeg. I was like, you know, uh, the year I graduated high school I was going to go to university. I thought maybe I'll be a lawyer. And um, 
and these bikers chased me out of there. And, you know, uh, hey, stupid fly, you better get moving. And I say, well, shit, man, you ought to know better than to wear your leather suit to a rock and roll bar. You know, right away, I thought it was the way I was dressed. So I left there and then I became, but what I, what I did was I embraced the word niggers. So what did I do? I started hanging out with not black people, criminal black people. I found the worst black people to hang with. You know, it's like, if you didn't slap your woman for being drunk and lippy, then you couldn't sit at our table no more. I found the worst of our, of our people to embrace. And then I heard that niggers crazy and Everything Pryor said, prior, to me when Pryor said, niggas do this, niggas, to me it, it stopped being hurtful. It was like my dad's friend Millard, the one with the gun with the gun on the table. He was a red pant wearing nigger. You know, however James Brown had his hair done that, that era was how Millard had his hair. You know, if, if you want to put, uh, you know, the N-word in the dictionary, you'd have to put Millard's picture underneath it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I embraced it. And then I started, so then I was in Winnipeg, and every time I came home to Chicago for Christmas, I couldn't just, my mom would give me money for, for clothes. I couldn't just buy something traditional. No, I had to go buy every fucking Superfly suit I could find. So there I am in white-ass Winnipeg, dressed as super nigger, you know? And then, and then, and then that's when I, it was about that year when I decided that after hearing priors, that nigger's crazy, I decided, like, well, I, I, was, I was auditioning for theater projects in University of Winnipeg, but they was not auditioning. Nobody with froze. So, you know, so stand up became my door to the, you know, to showbiz. And, you know, and, and nobody, I, be, I, I tried to become the walking personification of the word. I, I, I be, the word made, the word hurt me so much that I embraced it so much that the word couldn't hurt me anymore. Right. You mm. know? And if somebody said, well, you know, I, I remember there was a, there was a, a, a there was a, a black guy that used to be a bus driver and he used to be a bouncer at a club. And, you know, and he, he talked to me when I get out of line, he'd go, you know, he's a Jamaican cat older. You know, when you act this way, you just make a, a negative image of black people. When they see you, you know what they say? They say, that's how black people are. And I say, no, they say that Kenny Robinson is a bad nigga. That's what they say, you know? And I was, I, I just became so much in love with the word, you know, that, and, and then I, people say, you know, it becomes a, a term of endearment. I've had people stop me on the street that have come to the Nubian shows. You know, this one woman stops and says, why do you say that word when everything else you do is so positive? Why do you have to say that word? And I said, because that's kind of nigger I am. Hoppity, 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 hoppity. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I mean, like that word is that word is so loaded now. You know, it's like Paul, you know, like Pryor said after that, after going to Africa, he wasn't ever going to say it again. Well, you know, he said it again because he said he wasn't going to do cocaine again. And he did cocaine again. And right. then when I went to South Africa, you know, the uh, Griff introduced me some black comics there and they were all dropping it. And then I said, well, do y'all call each other Kaffirs? Because that's what the South Africans call blacks. And the right. car got silent. It's like, no. So they will, they will adopt North American terms of endearment, right. but they can adopt their own fucking derogatory terms as a term of endearment. Right. Because, so, yeah, it depends on the kind of sentimental, emotional attachment you have to the word. I've told many people, I don't get offended by the word, even when it's been used hatefully, yeah. because I was introduced to it, like I've told you guys, as an adult. So I already had enough sense of self to realize that that's not on me that's on the other person yeah so i've used it as a term of endearment i have heard it as a term of hatred but it's never bothered me and i but the one thing that bothers me is when 
self-righteous white people say you can't use that word. Like, and, and, and the reason it bothers me is because it's easy for them to say this. <coughs> the word makes them uncomfortable because they realize the it's discrimination, the hate, yeah. the history that comes with it. And it's like, no, 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 deal with that first. And, and then we'll talk about the word. And the way I, because I, I, I got into this at, at CBC, actually, because someone was trying to, you know, teach me about the history of the word. And I said, yeah. let me ask you something. If you went to a black person, that lived in America or Canada, let's say even conservatively 70 years ago, and you ask them, what is the worst thing that has happened to you in your life? You think the word nigger will make top five? The ass no. that accompanied the word. You know, yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> Everything else that came with the word would be so much, like the fact that we, it, it shows a little bit of progress, but it shows that no, the word is not the issue, your intentions behind it. Uh, the issue. The crazy thing is, is like people want to, people want to stop you from using that word, but there's like a, a fully like a, a black girl who was pushed out of an apartment building by a cop, allegedly. But allegedly, I yeah. Uh, I also know about mental illnesses and, and, and people sitting on ledges. So, you well, know, that's why I haven't jumped on that right away. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I don't, I, I can't say I was there, but from what her family who called the cops said, they were in the hallway and heard her saying, help mom, help. And no one would let them in. And it's just, either way, it's a tragedy. Mm -hmm. But it is, it's one of those things where they were calling it a suicide before doing an investigation. Before and the right. body landed. The problem. And it, there's a lot of that that happens in Canada that doesn't get discussed like it gets discussed when it happens in the States. So people assume there's no problem here. And that's the thing that drives it. It's hard to convince an audience who may themselves be racist that racism exists in Canada. You could, you could be sitting in front of uh, a white knight in Canada and they'll, they'll be like, I don't know. I don't see any racism. Here. I don't see anything. And well, I don't well see that happened with me. What are you talking about, nigga? I don't see any racism. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing George Floyd died for was the same thing that I encountered and was on the news for that I almost got in right. trouble for, which was George Floyd was, they thought that they went to a cash checking place or something right. and they thought he had a 20. fake 20. I was in the news for, and that's when you say exactly what you're saying is true. I videotaped this man taking my check throwing it at me, telling me I'm not cashing the check, get out of my store. And I'm like, could you at least tell me why you're doing this? And he's like, get out, I'm calling the police on They don't you. like to be asked why. And, and when I, and here's the funny part is that guy was Indian. That's what really <coughs> made it even worse. But it, uh, uh, it, 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 it really resonated with me because you know what happened when they posted that story on CTV News? I got called all kind of you nigger, monkey, yeah. Nigerian, Fraud check cashing nigger. Of course, and, my Nigerian. And made nobody, well, you know, nobody kind of questioned the fact that what he did was racist. Racist. All we want to question was why did you need to go to a money mart? Right. And I'm like, what the fuck does it have to do with anything? Right. right because I'm showing you a video of somebody yeah. being racist towards me, and all you could think about is, I think you're shady, Sterling. Because why are you going to money mart to cash a check? And I'm just like, holy shit. What do they I think happens at this business? Why I'm in a money mart? 
Just yeah, for all yeah. guys to then justify why this I asked the racist. same question because I know you're making money. You should have several <laughs> bank accounts <laughs> legitimate businesses. I said, why did brother go into them damn rip off money mark people? Why does because he not, I was on he the road. Four, you guys know why. Uh, you should have six Miller, different right? bank accounts. No love whatsoever here, right? He's like, he's amongst, he's, amongst, he's amongst his people and people are still like, yeah, that's a good question though, Sterling. Like, why not? You're a property owner. All banks hold my checks. I'm messing with you. I'm messing with you. Okay, what, I want to go ahead. Sorry, Asian. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say it's the same thing with Defonte Miller out in Oshawa who lost. Yes, yes. That shit ain't getting played up enough. It's they put his, they, they put that on three month delay before they're going to even fucking see if they're going to charge these guys or convict them. It, I mean, he, trial. They they basically beat the, this young man uh, and gouged out his eye, um, a young black man, and. It was it was an off duty cop and his brother and, and his daddy's a cop. SIU. Cop. Sorry. And his daddy's an ex cop. Yeah, his daddy's an ex cop, and also it, it, I think he does like police internal investigations, or he has some control with that. We have that happening in Canada, in in Oshawa, in Ontario, and people want to still deny that there's a systemic problem. They weren't going to investigate anything to do with what happened to this kid anytime there's a, there's an act of violence anytime someone's shot anytime someone's injured Sweep by it a cop it's supposed to be investigated but they shut that shit down until people started getting loud and that's the yep. problem is in canada there's a there's almost a survival by politeness when you are an mm -hmm. immigrant or a person of color it, you're told to keep your head down and assimilate so we have been taught to be quiet and not make noise, but the the problem is noise is the only thing that gets you a result. That gets attention, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like um, I want to take it to this direction now. Like with everything that's gone on the last couple of weeks, I'm sure you guys have all had interactions online with people and had you know you've talked to oh. friends, white and black, whatever. Like for myself, um, if I'm honest, I feel. I feel more hope now than ever, just because this is lingering now. This has not been like a 48 hour thing. This has not been nah. like, it's like, I have white friends like contact me going, dude, uh, I'm sorry. And I need to know more and I need to learn more. And what can I do? Like it's on the lips of people. And that gives me hope. It doesn't mean like, you know, next week we're all good, but I'm like, this thing is, and maybe a friend of mine had mentioned this too, with the whole COVID thing and the lockdown, we're forced to deal with it because you can't fill your day with busyness and all the stuff you used to do. This thing is now right in front of your eyes and you can't look away. You can't pretend you don't know. Like it's, it's right in your face, like a bucket of cold water. And so I'm like, Oh yeah. I said white, white Canadians are going to listen because the NHL playoffs are not on. So they and they've seen all the Netflix. Right. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. It's like, you have nothing else to be at. There's nothing else that should be on your mind except how do we get past this? How do we figure this shit out? And so that, that gives me hope, but I also go, there's still such a long road to go. Like we still, we still have so much work that we'll probably never ever see in our lifetime, see it finished or accomplished. But like, what are your, Arthur, start with you. Like, what are your, what are your thoughts on right now? Like where we are right now? I, I am, I am, I am less hopeful than you. I'll be honest because I've, we, we the, you know, the five of us have seen these videos before. I haven't even watched the videos because I know how that game goes. So I'm less hopeful because I know we are a world that's sort of fleeting in our outrage on other spent. things. I will agree with you in terms of like, this is a bit different because of sort of the, 
the marriage of circumstances. The pandemic is going on, people are locked in, and, and the brutality of George Floyd's sort of like treatment compared to how docile that he was. I think that made people realize, okay, maybe I need to do part of it, but, I, but, but, but I'm less hopeful because like Aisha said, in Canada, there's de denial and it's so insidious. It's so, the, 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 the root of the problem is so deep that I don't know if people can even wake up and realize that they're terrified of just looking at a black person. Forget refusing to hire them for jobs, forget to tokenism on like CBC and, and, and then the stuff that they do and, and that, 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 that perpetuates it and all. Like just the fact that on a daily basis, just walking out of your home is, is terrifying for a lot of white people. That's the thing that I don't know you can sort of switch immediately because that is taught from a very young age. And unless the generation of kids who are like 10 and under right now get, and I mean white kids, if they get any sort of education that starts to sort of deter them from that behavior, then we have a chance. But the only, the only hope that I have, I will say, is that because of the way people reacted to COVID, if people realize racism is a pandemic, they treat it like a public health thing, then there will be change. Because here's the thing, in, uh, in history, the moment innocent white people die, changes are made. Unfortunately for racism, very few white people will die because of it. Plenty of black people will die. So for so white Trump to kill some whiteies. Exactly. So for whites, you know, the allies, who want to be allies, for them to understand that, okay, let's treat this by going innocent black people are dying. Because like they did it for tobacco. You can't smoke inside anywhere anymore. That doesn't mean people are not still dying from lung cancer and from tobacco smoke. No, people still go and smoke. But you have to walk, you know, 10 meters away from the nearest building. You can't do it anywhere near school. You can't, you know, those are the kind of like, they did it for COVID. They shut down the world. The world shut down. Just because people are like, innocent white people are dying. When it was innocent Chinese people, it was like, eh, I don't know if that's, we need to shut down the world. Right. When it was innocent, you know, German, Italian, American, Canadian, shut down the world. Uh, so the but moment who goes- showed up if, guns wanting to open it up again? Exactly, so, so the, here, the thing is, if people go, racism is a pandemic, we, have, we need to put in a, a system in place that sort of mitigates it. It doesn't mean you're gonna get rid of it, but less innocent black people will die. Now, and For I me, agree. that's enough. So I agree with what you're saying, and in fact, to enforce what you're saying, uh, and also what you're saying, Trent, you guys both said something very beautiful. Uh, one, that the racism is entrenched within the family. Two, white people saying, what can we do? I just spoke at a rally yesterday, and what I said was, what you can do is this. You start not by fighting the fight in the streets with the police, but fighting that fight at home. Yep. Fight the racism in your house because you need to change the narrative of what a black person is. You guys in your house, it doesn't take you very long to find that naysayer who denies the suffering of black people or that overtly, openly racist person. If you really want to make change, that's where you begin. Because you see, if you can change the narrative at home, then you can change how we are dealt with in society. But because of the fact that they dehumanize us, it makes it very easy 
to remove us and kill us. When they wanted to kill people in Iraq and Afghanistan, they called them insurgents. You terrorists. didn't know what an insurgent was. You didn't realize that to get three terrorists, they bombed 46 innocent people. But they need to say insurgent. What they do with us is by giving us that term nigger, black person, whatever the fuck they want to put us under. Son. They do it to dehumanize us. Do you know how shocked I was when I'm talking to a white comic in Calgary? And I say, why are you afraid of a do-rag? And he says, I'll be honest with you, Sterling. Whenever I see do-rag, to me, it screams gangster. I said, do you even know what this does? He goes, as far as I'm concerned, it's what gangsters wear to represent their gang colors. And I was like, holy shit. That's the legit narrative of somebody who calls me their friend. That I, who am not in no gang, I'm a goddamn comedian, am wearing a do-rag for the simple reason of just trying to keep my hair nice. But in his mind, he's like, you are perpetuating gangster stereotype. When what is this headdress? <laughs> it's just that that's what they've been fed. The yeah. narrative of black people has been fed as negative. We have been told that we are lazy. We have been told that we are violent. My father said something to me very long ago, and it didn't resonate till later. He said to me, son, when you go out to work in the oil fields, which are the most racist places I've ever seen, he said to me, son, never let them make a nigga out of you. I was 23 years old, so the word nigga was still in my vocabulary. And I said, what do you mean? I'm black. I can't avoid being a nigga. And he says, that's the problem. Nigga is not a color. It's an attitude. It's a mentality. It's a way of putting you in a box. Tell me one thing positive that they attach the word nigga to. When they say you have a niggerish attitude, when they say you have a nigger mentality, when they say that you act like a nigger, that's what they want you to be. Something that is not a black person, but a personification of a black mentality, which is poor and looked down upon. So you see, he goes, they're gonna push you. They're gonna tease you. They're gonna poke at you. And then you're gonna jump up and say, I'll knock you the fuck out. And then they'll say, see, told you he was a nigger. Mm -hmm. So you had to learn how to navigate how to speak and how to move differently when you are out there. And so what I say to them is, if you change the narrative at home, like you said, Arthur, that shit with, about like little kids and it has to be thing, if you start from at home and they start to realize, you know, holy shit, this is wrong, this is not acceptable, then what happens is, then when you see us in public, then little by little, that narrative of scary, big, the scariest thing in society right now is a big black person. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if anything on big any white, television white. show, no, I'm saying how they want to portray yeah, yeah. If you want to portray something scary in any movie or any television show, outside of a motherfucking horror monster, it's a big black guy. You know what I'm saying? We are looked at as dangerous to them. You know, look at everyone that's hung out with me knows I'm harmless. Yet when I walk down the street, I can promise you 10 out of 10 times people go to cross it. And so we need to change the narrative at home. So when you talk to white people and they say, what can I do? I say, well, the next time when we're not here, when social media is not around, with no cameras out, when you hear that white person go, man, them niggas is lazy, or those niggas deserve it, or that I'm not racist, but, or how come they're still talking about this? That's your time. That's your time to help. Remember That's we were in that strip club? Remember we were in that strip club and that white boy, we were there two minutes that white boy walked up and said to us, am I going to have to choke a bitch tonight? So right away, yeah. he just zoomed in on, you know, I mean, it's funny, it's Chappelle, but right away, he just zoomed in on, uh, on an ignorant oh. stereotype. I guess he tried to make yes. us feel at home. 
And that's what they do. Because you see, when you talk to Albertan white people, right, most of them who are my age, who are in the 30s and up, ask them the first time they met a black person. 90% of them will tell you the first time they met a black person was in their teenage years. And the only narrative that they ever had about black people was the negative stereotypes that had been posted and shown to them on a regular basis. So that's why, unfortunately for black people, unlike with white people, when a white person does a crime, it's that person's crime. Yep. But when a black person does anything, it represents our entire race. You know how hard it was for me to explain to white people I don't know what collard greens were? I don't <laughs> well, that's a Northern Canadian thing as opposed to the South. Right, but they go collard greens and grits, right? And I'm like, actually, it's fucking paylow and roti. Yeah, yeah. I just ate my first roti this week. It, oh my god that's hilarious <laughs> that ain't my people my people is collard greens yeah all right you see what i'm saying though like they look at us where one black person does something and right. it has to speak for the entire race yeah. yeah could you imagine if 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 uh if black if we had black as many black uh school shooters as they did how crazy they would consider black people they'd be doing stop and searches on black people daily saying oh, oh yeah you guys had four shooters seven-year-old kids would be would be put on the ground and searched before going to school every day. Right, but when a white person does it, it's that person. So we have the genius of isolating incidences and then humanizing these people. White people love to be like that person was had mental issues. Let's look at the past of that person. But when oh, yeah. a black person is murdered, they go. Well, he had weed on the nightstand, so fuck him. Look at his uh, past, too. Yeah, yeah. So fuck him. Uh, he was a porn star. Choke him with death. Yeah, yeah. They look <laughs> into our past to find the negative to justify our death. Now, mind you, when they go into our past, it's nothing of a justifiable term, but all they need is enough to say. Oh, yeah, a shoplifting. That's why you killed that nigger. It wasn't about race. You killed that nigger because he was a porn star. Good yeah. on him. Shoplifting. If you had a shoplifting accusation in the past, then you deserve to get choked out 20 years later. Exactly. And that's Uh, why I'm saying the only thing I can think of, and correct me if I'm wrong, the only thing I can think of is when a white person, and I say all people of color, because Indian people, East Indian people hate us, Asian people hate us, fucking Spanish people hate us, Lebanese people hate us, they all talk shit about us. Right. And it's funny when you look at the children from that generation. So look at people in their 20s and shit. You could see where they know what we're talking about because in their home, it's like, don't you bring no black people in this fucking house. But on the outside of that house, they're like, hanging with black people is not so bad. But when you go home, ask any Asian person in UFT, can you date a black person? They'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? I'll get thrown out of my house. Ask any East Indian person if they could bring a black person home. They'll tell you, motherfucker, I'll be banned. So in the reason why is because white people and black people, Patrice O'Neill did this the best, because white people and black people are at war and every other race falls online with us, right? And Indian and Asian, they chose white. And Spanish, you chose black, not because you wanted to be black, but because you, got, you want the same uh, uh, acknowledgement for the pain you go through as a black person and you're not gonna get a number one spot. But basically, you ask any of those households and those households will perpetuate the stereotypes that was given to them by white people. They will tell you that the blacks are lazy. They'll tell you that the blacks are ignorant. They will tell you, you know how sick and, you know how hard it is that when I go into a store and then that person is Filipino with a Filipino accent, I'm like, nine out of 10, they're gonna hate me. They're gonna give me some bad service. 
when I meet an Indian person who's fully Indian and they hate me. And it's like, you know that you guys are of color too, right? That's why when they say people of color, I'm like, no, 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 no. People of color and black people because people of color hate us too. And the reason why that they can get away with killing us, murdering us, putting us in prison is because the narrative is that we are dangerous. So the only way I see right now to make a step forward is by changing the narrative at home. So when a white person says to me, what can I do? I say, you start with your family. Yep. Because I know when they start talking to their family, they're going to start to see the racism that we have to deal with. And here's why I want them to start with their family. Because their family have jobs. Their family works at Superstore. Their family works in customer service. Their family works in HR. And those tiny little cuts of racism that we as Black people deal with every day that we can't report, it's their family members that are doing it. So if we can start there, then maybe, just maybe, as a we mother. can slowly change this. I got you. I got you. Aisha, what about you? What do you think going forward? I'm sorry. What was the question? The question <laughs> was, uh, do you like, guac do you like guacamole? Do you like guacamole? <laughs> yes or no? Sorry, I don't man. know. Sterling went off on a tangent there. It was about sorry, guacamole. Man, and I'm thinking I want to. Do you think it's a good now. condiment and uh, <laughs> salsa? What's your thoughts? Uh, sorry, sorry no, what was the real question? Well, the real question was, I I know there's a long road to hoe, and I just know that, you know, but I, I am somewhat encouraged by the conversations that people are having right now, and friends of mine who've reached out are like, I need to be better, I need to learn more, I need, like, I've never had them do that before. They've never ever been in that headspace. What are your thoughts about where we are right now? Like, where do you see things going forward? Um, I, look, I feel like we're... Uh, like when it comes to to racism in North America in general, people have been uh, turning a blind eye for a long time. Yeah. And now shit has hit the fan structurally, and so the little safety nets, or not even safety nets, the little blinders that we had on, we no longer have the luxury of having on. And people, black people, uh, who have been disproportionately at the bottom of the totem pole for so long, are now. Uh, well, they're now joined by other people who are struggling. Like we are, I don't see things getting better before they get much worse. I, I also think that human beings in general just have a natural disposition to, to be biased, to have biased thinking. And mm -hmm. in order to fight and counter that biased thinking, you have to educate yourself. And what's happening right now is ignorance has chosen its platform of social media and ignorance is spreading like a disease. Like I, what Arthur was saying about racism being a pandemic. I, I know that a lot of good activism has come out of social media, but it's also really rallied and emboldened people who feel like, oh, my point of view is valid um, when it's not. Yeah. And so I, I, I can't say I'm necessarily hopeful, but it has given me, I have been silent on social media because I don't know what I want to contribute or how I want to contribute yet. I feel like nuance is important and it's been lost through Twitter. People are just speaking in nonsensical sound bites and they're, they're dividing off. Um, I, and I also don't know why, I, I understand that there are people of influence you want to hear from at this time, 
this call for every white person who had a talk show in the 90s to come out and support like i don't give a shit what ellen <laughs> like I'm, I'm not that interested in ellen's take i and yeah. i understand that she has the ability to rally but this is bigger than ellen this is bigger than than all of us but yeah I think the, the change starts to happen when we have nuanced conversations, maybe. Um, I mean, not radical change. Radical change probably comes from a revolution. And that's- yeah, violence, yeah. And so it's why I've been getting mad at people asking, you know, talking about Trump, like he created the racism. No, he's Racism is a lot older yeah. than Trump. He's, he's the one who's talking the fires right now, but if nothing changes, it's gonna be around long after he's gone and then you won't have Trump to blame. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I agree with you on that. I hear it's you. like, remember when uh, Henry Gates was arrested for trying to go into his own house and yeah. Obama had the beer summit with a cop and, and, and Professor yeah. Gates? You know, now mm -hmm. I have some very militant friends that say, well, figures Obama. But they, and, I, and I try to explain, I said, well, that's how a lot of Caucasian people say, well, let's if we can all sit down over a beer and chat out our differences. So, yeah. you know, so Barack was trying to take that, let's have a beer and talk about it together. You know, I don't want to have a beer with any of them motherfuckers. I mean, it's that's the thing. Is that there's people who want to, anytime you talk about a black person who was murdered by the police, they want to talk to you about black on black crime. Yeah. Yeah. What's missing from that conversation is separating what is a symptom of racism and and often violence in in impoverished and racialized community comes as a symptom of racism. Yep. And that's what nobody is really talking about. And I, I think that having complicated conversations in the media where we're not just allowing talking points to, to be the, the narrative where we're actually breaking down mm -hmm. all of the, the, I guess, mm -hmm. the more nuanced points to this. Mm -hmm. That's important. Also, not using terms that are overly academic. Like, I feel like the term white privilege puts people on edge because if you are a poor white person, you don't understand the term white privilege. It exists, right. real, mm -hmm. but to you, you're thinking, I was born in a shack. I don't know what you're talking to me about privilege. I don't oh, yeah. Affirmative yeah. I agree. And I further agree. to that, that about white privilege, what I find is when you say it to someone, it's dismissive to them because it negates any work they've ever done in their life. They're like, I bought yeah. some ass. We started with nothing. I da, 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 I went put myself to university. So it automatically means you they think there's a disconnect. Like you don't know me at all. You don't know my story at all. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you one hundred percent. They can't stand that for one minute. I refer to it as a blind spot. Like I think yeah. all of us have a blind spot that we live in Absolutely. our skin every single day. Aisha, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I don't know what it's like to be a black woman in Canada. Like it's I can amazing. try it. I, <laughs> I know I can try it. But like, I'm serious. Like with the Me Too movement, it wasn't until like female friends of mine started telling me they're like real stories. And like, I went like, oh my God, I've had blinders on thinking like, yeah, I know there's animals out there, but I mean, we got the law and like small shit. Like, you know, my ex-girlfriend would be like, uh, you're out drinking with some people and having a good time. And she's like, yeah, I want to head home. And I'm like, I, I want to stay out and have some drinks. She's like, okay, cool. But I got to get a cab home. I'm like, okay, cool. So anyway, guys, I was at the, and she's like, no, like, I don't want to get in a cab by myself. And I was, I was just, you live in your lane. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like I was, I was like, shit. Like I walked through life as a six, three black guy. Like I remember working at a comedy club. You close up at the end of the night, you're having some drinks. You're going to go back to the condo, go to the hotel. And one of the staff is like, are you walking that way? 
one of the female staff, but I'm like, oh, she likes Why me. No, she doesn't want to get mugged or raped yeah. on the way home. She's just asking if you're going yeah. in that direction. Like, right. you, just, you just live like this. And I feel like yeah. I'm hoping to God that this is at least wide the lens that people can go, oh, shit, this is real. Like, this is yeah. a thing. Yeah. I will agree with you on that. The Me Too movement opened my eyes because I was walking down the street with a girl, and she's like, why are you walking on this side of the street? And I was like, it doesn't matter. She goes, this side of the street has no lights. The other side does. You can't walk down the side of the street with no lights get snatched that way. And I'm like, I don't ever think that way. No. But like I said, I the Me Too movement opened my eyes because I was exactly like you, Trent. I was like, yeah, there's rape in the world, but it ain't that bad. Right. And then I was like, holy shit, it's everyone. Yeah. And so uh, I definitely changed my narrative uh, right. after the Me Too movement. Yeah. Well, Although, I, I, just, I just want to tell a quick story because I talk about walking down the street. I just want to take back a little bit about racism and perception. Uh, when I first moved to Toronto and I said doing stand-up, you know, you stay out late and then you go home. I was, I was living at, in like downtown uh, Toronto, I should say midtown, like Young and St. Clair. And I was walking home along Young Street, which is like the, one of the busiest streets in the city. Uh, but at that point, there's not really much going on. And three drunk white guys were walking from the opposite direction and they were being very loud and very obnoxious. And as I was walking up, in my mind, I went, oh man, like I hope nothing happens. One of those things where it's like, I hope, you know, it's not a bunch of racist dudes that will try and like pull some shit because there's three of them. I'm just by myself. Yep. I'm going to get sort of like, inside. but it's, it's in my mind. I'm not like worried, worried, but they're on my sort of radar Guards up. As, as, we, as we walk towards each other. And because they were having a conversation with each other, they hadn't really noticed me coming up the street until they looked up and they saw me. And not only did they quiet down, they crossed the street. Good. They saw me. Good. And then I couldn't stop laughing for the rest of the way. Oh, because okay, I was like, I was worried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they looked up, they saw a giant black man, and they were like, okay, we need to sober up and uh, cross right. the street in it's case night, this fellas? black, yeah, in case this black guy mugs all three of us at the same time. <laughs> And uh, it's one of my favorite moments in the city. And, you know, the beauty, and the beauty of that was it was all unspoken, right? Yeah, all just unspoken. Like, just in their head, in yeah. your head. Yeah. And, and that was that magic moment, right? Yeah. That's Sorry, like Russell Peter's book. He talked about when, when he was going to school first time and somebody yelled, Packy, and he, they started running. And then he ran because he didn't know he was what they were talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No idea, like, yeah, we're going to do it? someone else. This, like, yeah. Um, Kenny, what do you think, man? Where are we at right now? I don't know, but I'm going to be talking less and less to white folks. Really? I'm just <laughs> sick of them. I'm 62 years old. Like you're, I said, I've been, fighting this shit. I've been fighting this shit since the first day I went to school, you know? Right. So it's like I've got my friends, and I, I got a pretty good meter on with me. You right. know, I, I can basically, you know, I, I, I can usually break the shit down real quick. And uh, it's just like, I, I'm done. You know, I'm not, you know, we, we, like, you know, like I wrote today, a minute somebody says all lives matter, I smile. I don't try to explain what it means. That person is dead to me. More yep. conversation. I'm not trying to explain, well, well if, you know, if black power is good, how come white power is, I said, you'd be powerful, bitch. And I'm done. Yeah. Yep. 
I'm done. You yeah, know, I'm doing uh, the same thing now. I'm getting my my I'm getting my Miles Davis on like a motherfucker these days. Yeah, yeah. You're picking your spots. You're like, well, I think there is that too of like, yeah, how Miles much there's a, there's an aware an awareness fatigue almost of like how much how much more do I have to like you know like that type yeah. of thing like just not my not my thing anymore. That's not the hill right. I'll be on. Like I'm gonna move on to this thing. You know. Right, but there's also enough information. Um, going back to the Aisha was talking about how social media has become this dwelling point for ignorance where it's like you, you realize very quickly not all of not all of us are trying to have a see um, a decent conversation educate ourselves so it's like when i see an all lives matter i just delete you from my right. space because i'm like oh we're not i don't need you and you don't need me right and this is not about like we, we, the, the the idea of black lives matter it's not a polit it's not up for for a vote so if you don't get it and you refuse to educate yourself, I'm like, because I, I refuse to believe that white people don't know what's going on. The, 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 the Doug Fords and the Rex Chapmans of this world who are going out there saying statements like, you know, racism in Canada doesn't exist. I know for a fact they know it, it does. They're not that dumb to not look around and look at how in, in, the, the inequality that's around but they're willing to dog with, so they're willing to pander to people for, you know, whether it's money or power, whatever it is. But the, the idea of it is like, I'm, I know you know that that's not true. And you can't be that ignorant. You can be maybe ignorant of the scope of it, of the impact of it, of the long standingness of it, of, of any of these nuances. But the fact that it exists, if you're still playing the card of like, but prove it to me. Right. right. I don't have time for that. I mean, Seth Ford must have had several clapbacks from indigenous activists. Alone, exactly. Right. Like it's crazy to be like Canada doesn't have the same systemic problem. And then yeah. For, forget even indigenous. Yeah. Like someone pointed out the fact that when his brother got in trouble with the video, <laughs> right. they went into um, the Somali housing units right. to um, for the people that had to the criminalize. Case. Yeah, to criminalize yeah. black kids to say that oh no no it wasn't the white guy who was doing anything wrong right it's the black kids that gave it to him that are the problem right, right. yeah you know, plus i'm tired of i don't feel the need to try and explain to anybody that you know that pretends or professes to be my friend and they say something about well he resisted or he should have complied you know, it could be me, it could be each and every time this happens, by the grace of God, it could have been any one of us or anybody we know could have been the motherfucker with somebody sitting on the back of our neck. You know, and, and, and that's why I wrote the other day, I said, if I ever die in the hands of, of the police, don't say Kenny wouldn't want this. Kenny'd want you to fuck shit up because I shouldn't have been taken out of this world. God damn right. You I know, the same shit. So, yeah, right. so you know, it's, Burn it's, that it's, motherfucker down. I mean, I'm not a violent man, and there's not a finer gentleman than Arthur. But if somebody was, but if something was to fucking happen to Arthur, I know Arthur didn't have a, a fake 20 because he's always broke. I know that this shit didn't happen, <laughs> you know, and I and I say there ain't a goddamn excuse, reason. Let's let's discuss this, let's investigate. You didn't know what Arthur did back before he came here from Kenya, you know. We don't have to, I don't have to hear any of that shit to know that a good and decent, righteous human being is no longer with us because some motherfuckers got a preconceived notion of him. And then for that, for that, there is no forgiveness. For that, yeah. there is no, there is we shall overcome. It would be burn, baby, burn. And Hell yeah. Is, 
It happens too goddamn often. If something was to happen to you up there in Alberta, you know, I'm going to, you know, well, he did this. Yeah, you know, he probably did. He probably smiled at your bitch. And you saw that pretty smile that goes to the dentist regularly. And you decided that you had to eliminate the threat to your masculinity. Okay. So, and I said, so there is no excuse. There is no, there is no let there be an investigate. What the fuck you going to investigate? So when, yeah. people, when I say I'm tired of talking, it's because we've done, um, you know, I'm too old to go up there and I mean, you know, I, I ain't going to loot. You know, I still got to raise my, you know, my children are basically raised, but I hope to see grandchildren. Right. But, you know, but the point is I'm done trying to explain this shit. That shit ain't right. Yeah. And Ex anybody that especially I even have to have that conversation with is not anybody I even want to talk to anymore. Yeah. Especially when people are okay with the fact that somehow death is an acceptable result for any sort of black crime. Right? Like like white kids can shoot up schools, can 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 shoot up churches, can do anything. And and people will be like, but we need to figure out the mental health aspect. The this, what kind of home did they grow up? But the moment any like when they're like, oh, but you know, you were talking about Ahmed Arbery and the fact that they were like he was looting a construction site. Even if that's true, the result should not be death. No. Yeah. Do you understand? Like, if you're a shoplifter, if you're looting, whatever they call it, if you're uh, smoking weed, even if, like, the, 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 the punishment, the, the fact that so many people are comfortable with the punishment being death right. means there's something wrong. You wrote a fake check, you had a fake $20 bill, and the cop didn't use your turn signal. Put a knee on your neck and you died. And people still have to debate, but why did he have, like, no, 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 no. The, I mean, the, the, there's, sorry, sorry, there is like a, there's an empathy problem. Yeah. Right? Where people, uh, do you remember when, um, what was that movie? It was like a, uh, the big movie with Jennifer Lawrence, where uh, Hunter, uh, the, the, the games. Hunger right. Games. Uh, Hunger Games. Hunger right. Games. Yeah. How is Hunter um, behaving? Oh, Hunter, he's <laughs> terrified and white. Um, <laughs> great. Hunter's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so in the Hunger Games, they, they cast a little black girl for a yes. role that hadn't been described in the book racially. Right. And people were, fans of the book were livid because they're like, I can't relate to this character anymore. How is she black? I can't relate to a little black girl. I don't feel bad for this character dying anymore because she's black and I thought she was white. And that is the root of a lot of this is that when something happens to a black person, there's some people who cannot empathize, period, because they can't identify with that person. And I think we're having, we're really witnessing now how much people don't give a fuck about us because we don't look like them. Yes. Mm -hmm. From our perspective. And I don't know what will make someone see it from our perspective. Right. And that's what makes me less hopeful. It's the fact that people are so many people are comfortable with death, yeah. the punishment for any sort of transgression a black person does. And then the fact that when we go back to systemic, NBA teams released statements on Twitter and social media sort of condemning and sort of official statements. Um, 28 of them actually did, except two. And, and I went through them. And all of them said something to the, to the, to the effect of like, uh, you know, we, we condemn the death of George Floyd and we, we condemn racism and we're, as an organization, we want to do better and live in a world that's all equal, blah, blah, blah. Not a single one of them 
mentions that he was killed by a police officer. Not one. And you guys can do your research on this. And it broke my heart because if it came from any other group of people, I'd have been like, fine. But this is, these are organizations that make billions, not millions, billions of dollars based off of the bodies of black men. And even they can't come out and say, that cop was wrong. Not all Slave cops. Owners. Like, I, don't owners. Even, I don't even need to, to, to call out all of police forces. No, no, just say this one guy was wrong and none of them could do it. And I was like, what are we doing here? What are we trying to achieve? If these guys were all billionaires, none of them are going to lose their money. None of them. Yeah. Okay? As long as LeBron is still playing, there's going to be money going to be made. Because of the NBA. backlash they fear. Because once, it's like when Beyonce did her whole thing at the Super Bowl, and there's right. all these white cops association, but it's not called association of white cops, just called right. association of, of police. They said they weren't going to provide security for the tours. They weren't going to provide security at her concerts. So if one owner was even mentioned this, that the force of the, of the thin blue line, which yeah. is very thick, they would they would just go all what i love is uh, watching the nfl talk about uh, how this is wrong when they basically crucified uh fired my boy for kneeling exactly yeah. that's what i'm saying if it was the nfl i would have been fine with it but the nba has players who are powerful who would have yeah. said stuff to it. and here's the thing about because there's that thing now that cops are doing where they're, they're threatening to pull out of cities and neighborhoods and like see how you'll deal and which is funny to me because maybe innocent white people will die now but here's the thing uh i got four guns yeah but but the the so-called um uh 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 uh, uh, the payback whatever the billionaire owners are worried police officers won't be like protecting their um venues is bullshit because a there's not, there's money and money trumps everything. I don't care. If you think I'm broke, police officers don't make that much money. That's why they show up to these games. Most of them are off duty at the time. And I guarantee you, every billionaire, if he was like, listen, we've put together a separate fund. And if you're a former police officer, former military, we will give you, you know, the permits, whatever, to have a gun and come stand outside the arena while a basketball game goes. Because guess what? If I'm going to a game and I'm causing trouble, I'm not going to look for a badge to justify whether that person can take me in or not. If they have a gun, I'm going to be like, yes, sir. I'm sorry I'm drunk. I'm going to walk out. I'm not going to ask, are you a police officer? Like, (laughs) that's not a question I'm going to ask, okay? So you can pay people to come guard your arenas because you have all the money in the world. So I don't believe that for one second. Like, oh, we are afraid from the pushback from the police. They're not going to. Well, guys, um, man, we covered a lot of stuff. I want to thank you, crazy kids, for your time today. I love you all. I hope you're all <laughs> I appreciate safe. You. And um, yeah, man, I don't know. Just uh, another vehicle to keep the conversation going, man. You know what I mean? And Keep uh, fighting the good fight. Thanks, keep Chad. the good fight. So there it is. Um, yeah, man. There's a lot of a lot to take in in that episode. Um, I'm sure there's some some stuff on there that uh, that's probably hard to believe for some people out there. If you, if you're you're living in the world and and I get it, man. We are we're in our lanes and we uh, 
we go about our daily business and it's really hard to kind of understand what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes, you know, it's really difficult. So that's why we feel it's really, really important to listen to the stories of others. That's how we, we learn about their experience and we almost see the world through a different set of eyes. And, uh, and, and that's where we learn. And sometimes that's, that's, it's not easy to do because it forces us to kind of look at our own, our own thought processes and our own behavior and, uh, and question it and, and wonder what decisions we can make going forward that improve the situation. So I want to thank every single one of them for, for being as honest as they were um, and giving their time. I think this is an important moment in our history. I think we have to take it and, and we have to run with it and keep going in the right direction. And I hope conversations like this help uh, with that movement and that cause. Thanks so much again for listening. I truly appreciate it. I hope you are well and I hope you're safe. Um, I hope in your quiet moments you too remain, remain somewhat hopeful that brighter days are ahead in every regard. And uh, join me again next week on the Game Ready Podcast. Take care.